We are programmed to eat too much. It's almost normalized in our culture. Can't leave the table unless we're feeling stuffed. So what's happening? First, it's the type of food we're eating, and then it's the quantity of food we're eating. So usually, when we talk about the food quality, it may be high in fat, high in added sugars. It may not contain whole ingredients like whole grains. It may be made with processed ingredients. So we're eating really this concoction of refined food that's often high in fat, high in calories, high in sugar. So that's one issue. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. like Rockford, Illinois, Las Vegas, Nevada, and Gainesville, Florida. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 95 of season 4, number 290 overall. And our top question today is maybe something that you experienced recently. What happens to your body when you eat a big old dinner? Maybe even Thanksgiving dinner. We're talking about all of the sides, all of the trimmings, a mountain of mashed potatoes, turkey piled high if you're not vegan, a river of gravy, and then going back for seconds and washing everything down with a slice of pie. But then after you do that, what comes next? Well, the food coma. You are stuffed. You are bloated and you cannot keep your eyes open. And it is at that point that your body may ask you, was it worth it? <laughs> well, we are going to find out indeed if it was. And what was going on inside of you that gave you that blah kind of a feeling? Dr. Vanita Rahman is here with the science on the true price that you pay for the privilege of stuffing yourself silly. <laughs> And we're also going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag. And that means that Dr. Rahman is answering questions that you guys have sent in. We have questions about detoxing after that big Thanksgiving feast and what foods are known to cause stress. We also have questions about white meat versus dark meat. And is one actually healthier than the other? plus a lot of other nutrition questions that we will be feasting on. But before we get to the Q&A, I wanted to let you know that this episode of The Exam Room is brought to you by Kinder Beauty, the monthly beauty subscription that delivers the best vegan and cruelty-free products right to your door. Each monthly box contains up to $165 worth of beauty and self-care products that are kind to your skin and more importantly, kind to animals. And right now, special for the holidays, Kinder Beauty is being especially kind to the exam roomies such as yourself. Right now, get 50% off your first box using the code EXAMROOM. That's half off with the code EXAMROOM, one word, when you shop at KinderBeauty.com. And a portion of every Kinder Beauty sale helps support the Physicians Committee's work. And you can learn more and take advantage of this special offer right now by visiting kinderbeauty.com and using the promo code EXAMROOM. Time now to get rolling and stuff ourselves with knowledge, courtesy of the author of the new cookbook, Simply Plant-Based, Dr. Vanita Rahman. 
Good to see you again, Doc. Oh, great to see you, Chuck. Thanks so much for having me. We are here at the most American of all holidays where we just stuff ourselves silly. Thanksgiving. And that is our lead question, though. When we stuff ourselves silly, this is a question from Romaine, Doc. When we stuff ourselves silly, what actually happens inside of our body? What's going on in there? Yeah, you know, I think you really described so eloquently what happens at Thanksgiving. We are programmed to eat too much. It's almost normalized in our culture. It's Thanksgiving. Can't leave the table unless we're feeling stuffed. So what's happening at Thanksgiving are a few things. First, it's the type of food we're eating, and then it's the quantity of food we're eating. So usually, you know, we're talking about holiday meals and holiday feasts, and the food may be, um, when we talk about the food quality, it may be high in fat. It may be high in added sugars. Um, it may not contain whole ingredients like uh, whole grains. It may be made with processed ingredients like processed grains. Um, so we're eating this really this concoction of uh, refined food that's often high in fat, high in calories, high in sugar. So that's one issue. Um, the other issue is we're eating a lot of it, like you said, seconds and thirds. So we're in a in essence, eating twice or three times what we need to eat. And if you can imagine our stomach, Chuck, it's like a little sack. It's a balloon about this big. And it's, you know, it's about the size of our fist. So it's meant to stretch. It's elastic. And it stretches when we eat. Now, that sends a message to the brain to stop eating. But at Thanksgiving, we're eating two to three times the amount. And now it's stretching, stretching, and we're just ignoring it. And that stomach is just not where it needs to be. And it's very uncomfortable. That's what leaves us with that bloated, heavy, really sick feeling afterwards. Mm. Yeah, I think that uh, there's probably not a person who's listening to this or watching this right now who is unfamiliar with that feeling. I mean, it is it is something that comes up time and again. And to that fatigue, a lot of people will say, well, the reason why you get tired after you eat a Thanksgiving dinner is because of the turkey and the tryptophan that's in the turkey. But is that really just the tryptophan that's causing the drowsiness? Yeah, you know, it, I think it's multifactorial. Food is supposed to nourish us and energize us. But if we eat the wrong types of food and we eat too much of it, that food, it's just going to weigh us down. It's like walking around with a bowling ball. Your <laughs> body is just so full of this food. You're carrying all this excess food around. It just weighs us down. And I like to picture it like um, all our body's energy is going into digesting this food. So there really isn't that much available for us to do the other things we want to do. No question. And, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was really overweight and eating the 10,000 calories a day. Uh, eat those massive meals. And not once did I feel like I had pep in my step after I ate. It was like nap time as soon as I was through eating. Um, so not necessarily nourishing, but boy, uh, if, if you wanted to have a good sleep, man, that was it. Uh, all right. So now we've had that big old feast. We know what's happening inside of us. Now let's get all those bad toxins out of the body. Question from Michelle. What would you suggest for detoxing the day after Thanksgiving? Well, you know, first I'd say um, let's try to prevent getting to that state where we need to detox. So we 
Let's plan out our Thanksgiving. Let's be proactive and think, how much am I going to eat? Kind of think of the plate size. Think of how many platefuls you want to have, what feels right for you, and stick with it. Because wouldn't it be great to leave that table and feel that pep in the step that you described, Chuck, as opposed to feeling really sluggish and weighed down? But let's say that doesn't happen and you are feeling like, oh, that didn't really go the way I wanted it to. I'd like to feel better. Well, the best thing to do is really eat healthily going forward. So eat low fat foods, eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. They have a low caloric density. They're rich in fiber. And that fiber just kind of flushes out the bad stuff from our body and um, drink water and eat whole grains, eat those legumes, but really keep it low fat going forward because it's that fat in the stomach that's just going to add to that heavy feeling going forward. Right. And I think that, you know, when people write in and they ask a question like that, they are looking for this magical answer that will just wash away uh, everything that they've, they've done to themselves in the previous, in this case, 24 hours. Um, but you're saying like, there is no magical solution for this, right? Yeah. I mean, I wish there was like this eraser, we could just erase it all or drink something and flush <laughs> it out, but there really isn't. And, you know, um, there are often claims that are made online, like go on these sort of these um, fad type diets, but you just have to be careful. Uh, it's not really based on science. It's someone's opinion. So, you know, we have to eat clean always. And that's the best way to flush out our system. You're here to that. So now we've looked at the short term, Dr. Rahman. Now let's look at a little bit longer term, the duration of the holidays. Everybody's known to put on weight. I've seen estimates ranging from like five to seven pounds. The average person will pack on between now and the new year. So we have a question from Sissy who was wondering how much damage do we do to our health when we put on that weight over the holidays? You know, it, it really depends on each individual. It depends uh, what their health status is starting out. So if someone is dealing with diabetes, um, that extra amount of food and that extra amount of fat in the food, that extra weight could really mean the blood sugar levels sort of going haywire and really going up. For someone else who's maybe struggling with high blood pressure, eating more food than they need, gaining that weight, um, getting in more sodium than they would because they're just eating so much more um, could mean their blood pressure goes up. So everybody is a little bit different. But what's really important to know is that it's so easy to gain that weight, but it takes that much longer to lose it. So again, just being proactive and mindful is going to be really key here. Some people say that it's best to lose no more than one or two pounds per week. Do you subscribe to that? Well, I, again, I think it depends on the person. So um, the more weight someone has to lose, the more they may lose. You know, if someone is um, looking to lose 50 or 60 pounds, then they may end up losing closer to two to three pounds a week. Someone who's trying to lose maybe 10 or 15 pounds, their weight loss may be a bit more gradual. But the important thing is to do it in a healthful way. Do it in a way while eating well, feeling energized, and do it in a way that's sustainable because we don't want this to be a quick fad diet. We want this to be a lifestyle change. Yeah, it's funny. You think about when people do uh, go on these health journeys and they they want to get healthy, they want to lose weight. That weight comes off it 
in chunks a lot of times at first, and then it does taper off over time. It can plateau. It can even be a little bit frustrating, but that just kind of, to me, means that uh, you're on the right track. That's how I interpreted it when that was happening to me. Was I on point with that? Yeah, you know, I think you're right, Chuck. You know, weight loss is rarely this, you know, smooth, straight line going downwards. It's it's more like an up and down, up and down. There's some plateaus, there's some ups and downs. But the overall trend we want to look for is just it going down. So there may be some days the scale goes up a teeny bit. Some days it comes back down. Some days it plateaus. Uh, but the important thing is it keeps trending down. And if you do find that maybe you're stuck or that you're starting to go up. Just sort of take a step back and reevaluate what worked for you, um, what didn't work. And really, most of us know better than anyone what has worked for us. And then that insight can be very helpful going forward. Yeah, yeah. Weight loss, it's uh I always liken that to kind of like if you have a portfolio in the stock market, right? If you track that every single day, your 401k, you're gonna go bananas. Like you're going to have really good days and you're going to have days where it's just like, ah, so it's best to look at it over the long term, like you were just saying. So think of it like that. Now you mentioned sodium not that long ago, Dr. Rahman, and we have a question from Judy, and this is a really good one. I think that a lot of people are wondering this. She is wondering why does eating a lot of salt cause my body to swell up? She says sometimes she can't even take her rings off. Mm. You know, really uh, common situation many people find themselves in. So imagine our body is like an enclosed space and we have this volume of blood in it. And in it, there are many electrolytes that are floating around and our body needs each of them to stay within a certain concentration. So sodium is one of those electrolytes. So what happens if we have a meal that's high in sodium, let's say we ate some like something like potato chips or pretzels or um, some commercial food or processed food, we get a huge intake of sodium. Now there's this extra sodium that's in this enclosed space. The concentration of sodium has gone up, but our brain doesn't like that. It needs that concentration to come down right away, not over a few days, but immediately. So that's why after we have a bag of chips or pretzels, what do we reach for? A drink, because that's our brain making us drink. And now we've added volume to dilute out that sodium concentration. Well, this enclosed space is now stretched with this extra volume. And some of that volume can then seep in to our body tissue. So people may develop swelling in their feet or in their legs, or they may feel like, those rings are tighter than they used to be. And, and in some people who may have congestive heart failure or liver or kidney disease, it can be even more dangerous where the fluid can back up into their lungs and they can't breathe. So what would you recommend for somebody who overdoes it with sodium at a particular meal? What would you say that they do? I mean, is it instead of reaching for soda or something like that, you do drink water to try to flush that out of the system? Or do you just kind of like wait for it to run its course? Well, you're, what's going to happen is your brain is going to send a signal to drink. Now, at that point, we are often tempted to reach for like sugar sweetened beverages or fruit juices. Um, it's better to just reach for water. 
um, because it has no added sugar and it's going to help bring that concentration down. Now with time, our kidneys will do their job. They'll get rid of that extra sodium. They'll get rid of that extra water. But in, in the meantime, we are going to notice that not just in how we feel, but on the scale too, that water weight can come on almost instantaneously. All right, let's take it back to the Thanksgiving table. Take a question from Thomas. Thomas is wondering, oh boy, how many times have you heard this one? Is it true that white meat is not as bad for you as dark meat? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a fallacy, actually. So, you know, all meat, all animal food is really high in fat. It's very high in cholesterol. Uh, the reason this confusion exists is the traditional thinking is that uh, white meat like poultry or fish has less saturated fat than red meat like lamb or um, beef. However, um, it may have less saturated fat, but it's still problematic. It still has a lot of cholesterol. It still has a lot of saturated fat. It still has zero fiber and when we're talking about fish, it often contains toxins like mercury. So all these reasons um, together really make white meat or any meat no healthier than the other variety. This episode is being brought to you by Kinder Beauty. Visit kinderbeauty.com to learn more about their cruelty-free beauty box subscription service. And when you visit kinderbeauty.com and use the code EXAMROOM, you can save 50% off your first box. So right now we're talking about fat and we're going to get a little bit more advanced with our nutrition knowledge, go from 101 level up to 201. And we have a question from someone on Twitter who wants to know whether you need fat in your diet to adequately absorb fat soluble vitamins. Yeah. So there, you know, there are two types of vitamins, generally speaking, they're fat soluble and water soluble. Um, now fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D uh, we we do need um, some fat in our food to absorb it, but that doesn't mean we need to have a lot of fat. You know, we can we like to say that about ten to about ten percent of our calories should be from fat, and that's adequate to absorb uh, all the vitamins we need. Um, the bigger issue is consuming higher amounts of fat, which then leads to weight gain or elevated blood sugar levels. And how much fat should the average person be eating in terms of grams every day? You say like 10%. So if that's a 2000 calorie diet, you're talking about 200 calories. But in terms of grams of fat every day, what is your recommendation? Yeah, so a, a couple of good tips are, um, you know, about 20 to 30 grams of fat per day uh, is for the average person. The other thing you can do is if you're looking at a food label, you can also see how many calories, uh, how many grams of fat there are in each serving. And it should be no more than two to three grams of fat per serving. Right. And you, and you re really want to minimize the saturated fat, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if, and that's pretty easy to do. If someone is staying away from the animal foods, the saturated fat automatically goes down. And then in plant foods, they're really tropical fats where we see saturated fat. So coconut, and I'm sorry to say this, chocolate lovers, but chocolate, um, and then palm oil. So if we can really minimize those things, then we really bring down the saturated fat. 
So when you're talking about chocolate, though, you're talking about the things that were mixed in with the chocolate that have the saturated fat, or does the cacao itself have a little bit in there? So cacao itself has saturated fat. So, uh, however, if you like chocolate, uh, you're better off using 100% cocoa powder uh, that has a lot less saturated fat as opposed to solid chocolate. In solid chocolate, they they may add sugar to it. They may also add some, uh, they concentrate the fat from the production process more. So that cocoa butter that gives it that creamy, rich texture, that's full of saturated fat. So if you look at a label, uh, saturated fat in cocoa powder is very little compared to what you would get in solid chocolate. All right. Now, here is a question that many vegans are wondering right now. Uh, you're going to gather around with friends and family for Thanksgiving this year, and there is a pretty good chance that you will be around people who do eat meat. They are anything but vegan, and they don't understand the reason why you eat the way that you do. And it can become contentious, and it is just all around unpleasant. But, Doc, a question from Layla. She wants to deal with this unpleasantness. She's wondering, how can I have a civil discussion with friends and family about a vegan diet? Oh, I am so glad we're talking about this because this can become the, this very touchy subject and cause a lot of tension. Um, you know, I find it's often best to just speak about us, why we are doing it. So I'll give you an example. If someone says, um, why do you eat a vegan diet? If you say something like, oh, because it's the healthiest diet on the planet, well, then they may feel a little bit uneasy because it means that their diet is not healthy, and which may be scientifically true, but nobody likes hearing that. So it can become confrontational. But if, if someone says to me, why are you eating a vegan diet? And I say, well, you know, there's a family, there's family history of heart disease in my family. There's a history of breast cancer in my family, history of colon cancer. And I heard this way of eating could lower my risk. And I'm looking to do that. Then that feels much more acceptable to people. So really talking about why we are doing it as opposed to sort of making broad sweeping statements, which can make people feel defensive. Wow. Personalize it. That's that's really good advice. I could feel my armor come down when you said that. I was like, I'm like ready for battle to argue this. But like, <laughs> who's going to come back when you're like, well, you know, I've got this history of cancer in my family. Like very few people are going to be like, oh, well, still, you should be eating this and that. And, you know, it's like, no. Oh, OK. Gotcha. Who yeah. can't respect that? Um, all right. Thanksgiving also can be quite stressful. So Pete is wondering, what are some healthy foods that can help with stress? Well, you know, <laughs> it's so it's interesting. Um, you know, stress is multifactorial. There's stress can be related to our interpersonal relationships, about our work, about our finances. So food can obviously not combat that. But food can add to our stress in a way. If we're hungry, all those stresses become harder to deal with. Or if we're stressed out about preparing a healthy and delicious meal, that can be stressful. Um, so I think it's really important to know that, you know, there are other stressors that are out there and we really do want to focus on those in their own right. But when it comes to food, really eating clean, keeping it plant-based, keeping it... Um, 
easy to prepare stuff and keeping it low fat, at least then, no matter how much we're carrying in our backpack, at least our stomach feels nice and light, which definitely helps. Yeah. And and don't quote me on this, but I do believe that there have been studies that uh, show the different levels of stress uh, between a plant-based diet and a traditional diet. And what researchers discovered was there were lower stress levels among those eating a plant-based diet. So um, I will see if I can dig up that research. Are you familiar with that at all, Dr. Rahman? Well, I think there's been a lot of discussion and research about the connection between our food or gut microbiome and our mental health, because we know that, uh, you know, in our gut, in our intestines live these trillions of microbes, bacteria, and they eat what we eat and what they eat determines our health. Um, we are learning that more and more. And there's been a lot of research pointing that they may play a role in our mood, um, whether we're feeling down or happy. Um, so it's an active area and there's a lot more to come here. All right. So we were talking a little bit earlier about sodium. Follow-up question now from Madam Curious, who is on the other end of the sodium spectrum. She says, uh, I'm having a low concentration, or I'm sorry, is having a low concentration of sodium in your blood normal on a vegan diet? She said that she had to add salt to her diet because hers was too low. Yeah. So let's, let's really clarify the, um, there's a blood test that we commonly do that measures our sodium concentration. Um, and our sodium likes to be within a range. Um, however, that blood test may not adequately reflect how much sodium we have in our body. So, and the reason for that is as soon as our sodium levels go above that desirable range, our body makes us retain fluid either by drinking or excreting less to bring that sodium level down. So we could be eating a lot of sodium, but still have a normal sodium level. Similarly, someone could be getting enough sodium in their diet, but their sodium level may be low. So sodium level um, may be low. Usually it has to do with water intake. So um, I recommend for someone whose sodium level is low to really talk to their healthcare provider because there are certain conditions that could cause it. We don't want to just assume it's a lack of low sodium intake from the diet. Question from Tully. Tully's a vegan newbie. Uh, how will I know if I'm getting all the nutrients I need while eating a plant-based diet? Yeah, you know, this is a common concern. And I think it's common not just for people eating a vegan diet, but everyone. Everyone wants to get enough nutrients. Um, the most important thing is to eat a well-rounded diet. So try to get a variety of fruits and vegetables, try to get a variety of legumes like beans, lentils, try to get a variety of grains. However, there are a couple of nutrients that you may not get adequately from your diet, whether it's vegan or not. Um, one is vitamin B12. Um, now, this is one that we don't find in plant-based foods. So this is something we do have to ingest. And it's very easy. We only need about two and a half micrograms a day, and we can easily get an over-the-counter supplement to help us with that. So not hard to do. And your healthcare provider can check your levels to make sure you're getting an adequate amount. The other one is vitamin D. Um, this is actually made by our skin in response to sun exposure. And for reasons that aren't fully clear, many people tend to have low levels. But again, your healthcare provider can check. 
Um, you can increase your sun exposure if you're low, but some people may have to supplement. But those are the two main ones. The others are really very uncommon. I would imagine that uh, vitamin D deficiency might be common among uh, other you know, people who eat the, the traditional diet as well. That doesn't, I mean, as you said, that there are, you know, I, I don't know. It, it just seems like that might be a common one to me. Do you know, like in yeah, your practice? I, yeah, absolutely. The vitamin D deficiencies is less about nutrition. It's just common amongst everybody. Um, and a lot of that, you know, there's so many theories. We were outdoors less, we're indoors more when we go out, we were sunscreen or we're covered up. Um, but it's not clear um, why many of us tend to be deficient. But again, it's not unique to someone eating a plant-based diet. All right. A uh, question from Parker, uh, also just getting going on a plant-based diet, concerned about their bones. Parker wondering what plant-based foods and nutrients are best for building strong bones? Yeah, you know, just the wide variety of plant-based foods that we always talk about are great. The uh, other thing to keep in mind is avoiding alcohol, not smoking, uh, getting regular weight-bearing exercise. So whenever we put load on our bones, they strengthen. So for example, when we walk, our skeleton has to support our own body weight. So that strengthens our bones. If we ride a bike, which is great exercise, but our skeleton isn't supporting our body weight anymore. So that's not a weight-bearing exercise. Same with swimming. We're in the water, which can be a great exercise. Um, but the water is lifting us up. The buoyancy reduces the load on our bones. So really, weight-bearing exercise is very key here. So, I mean, the, the myth, though, is that in order for you to have strong bones, you have to have milk, whether that's drinking milk or eating cheese or really any form of dairy. That's how you get that calcium. That's how you get that vitamin D for strong bones. But you can absolutely get all of the calcium that you need without ever putting dairy on your plate. Yeah. And you know, this, there's so much, there's so many things there that we could unpack. So one is how much calcium do we need and what is the best place to get it? We know we need some calcium in our diet, but we don't really know how much that is. The traditional thinking of a thousand to 2000 milligrams a day, that may be too high. Maybe we need closer to 600 or 700 milligrams a day. The other is what is the best source to get that calcium so traditionally, you know, dairy products were pushed on us that, oh, this is such a great source of dairy, uh, of calcium. Well, it's really not. It does have calcium in it, but it turns out countries where people consume more dairy products, they have higher rates of fracture. So clearly there's not, you know, it's not just the calcium in dairy. There's something else about dairy that's harmful. Um, and so there are many theories about that, but we know that we can get adequate calcium from plant foods. So leafy green vegetables, except for spinach, uh, are a great source of calcium like kale, collard greens, uh, broccoli, uh, and then beans. All sorts of lentils, legumes, hard beans are also a great source. Then, of course, there are the myriad of plant-based milks like soy milk or almond milk, which are often fortified with calcium, tofu. So we have so many ways to get the calcium we need. 
I was curious. I was trying to pull up a number uh, going back to vitamin D uh, about the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency. And I found a study that was released in 2011 pulling data from the NHANES uh, study uh, from 2005 and 2006. Uh, they found that, quote, the overall prevalence of vitamin D deficiency was 41.6%. 41.6. So um, I further research on that is needed. That is just one thing that I found. But that to me seems like a shockingly high number. It is, you know, and this is very uh, vitamin D sort of become a bit controversial, too, because we're seeing a lot of research coming out showing um, vitamin D supplementation does not improve bone density, does not reduce the risk of fractures. So we know we need vitamin D, but what is the ideal amount and what is the ideal concentration in our blood? It's all, it's not completely clear yet. All right, let's uh, squeeze in a couple of more here for you. Uh, Samson, next up. I've been advised to eat a low carb, high fat diet in order to lose weight. I was told that is exactly what I needed to do to get enough protein and fat in my diet. I am so confused right now. Can you help out Samson? Well, I, th I think, um, I think a lot of people are confused about that. You know, there's this, um, there's a myth out there that somehow carbs are the problem and we're getting too many carbs and that we're getting insufficient amounts of protein, that we're protein deficient. And that fat is the key to all of this. So it's the opposite, you know? So let's try to understand how carbs got vilified. So carbs, um, are not really a food group. Carbs are a source of energy in our food and they're an essential source of energy. And usually things like grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, they're abundant in them. Now, nobody ever said eating an apple was bad for our health or eating a bowl of quinoa was harmful. Um, what started happening in our society is we started eating these unhealthy sources of carbohydrates like added sugars in the form of sodas, fruit juices, baked goods, doused with added sugars, a lot of refined grains that were then doused with butters or added fats. So it's no wonder um, that when we were eating those wrong sources of carbohydrates or unhealthy sources of carbohydrates, we our health was collectively going down. But what we need to eat are the healthy sources of carbohydrates. So fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains quinoa, brown rice, oats. Those are all great. Uh, those are all great. Now, I'd be very careful about eating a high-fat diet, especially if you're trying to lose weight, because we have research showing that a low-fat, high-carb, plant-based diet helps people lose weight and keep it off long-term. And we see the opposite with these high-fat, high-protein, low-carb diets as people lose weight temporarily, but then they tend to regain it. Yep. Yep. You hit the nail on the head. I got nothing to, to add to that other than spot on, Doc. Uh, final question. Danielle, uh, she is struggling with her cholesterol and looking for a little bit of help today. Uh, she wants to know, can eating a lot of nuts cause high cholesterol? She says that she eats a pretty clean plant-based diet other than her obsession with those nuts. Yeah. So nuts are traditionally high in unsaturated fats. And we know that it's saturated fats that increase our cholesterol level. However, nuts are very calorically dense. 
So nuts um, could elevate our cholesterol levels in a couple of ways. One, um, because they're calorically dense, they may lead to weight gain. And we know that excess body weight also contributes to higher cholesterol levels. The other thing could be that when we're eating nuts, we may not be, we may be filling up with nuts. And so we're not eating some of those other foods that are high in fiber, uh, such as fruits, vegetables, which we know help reduce cholesterol levels. So it could be, um, those could be a couple of mechanisms how nuts could contribute. And they're, they're one of those foods that is just so easy to overdo it with. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like handful after handful, mindless eating. Uh, just there's something about nuts that it's just, you just keep going and you don't even think about it. Um, so here's the deal. Thanksgiving is uh, tomorrow as you're watching this premiere. And if you still need some ideas for what you're going to be serving at your vegan Thanksgiving, uh, Dr. Rahman, I'm sure that you have some great ideas in your cookbook, Simply Plant-Based. Do you have something that could find its way onto a Thanksgiving table in here? Oh, I have a lot of great things in there. Um, one of my favorites is the pumpkin bread. You know, I, I love pumpkin this time of year and it's wonderful. Um, it's just, it's great. You can serve it as an appetizer. You can serve it with tea or coffee as dessert or just have it as a snack. Um, you could also try some other desserts in there like the black bean brownies or the chickpea blondies. Those could be a great hit. Um, of course, if you want to serve a, a meal, you could even think about the veggie lasagna. You know, everybody loves pasta. There's a Greek salad recipe in there that I love or minestrone soup. You know, Thanksgiving can be whatever we enjoy eating. And all of those foods would give people a lot of really delicious foods that are also very filling. Yeah, and it's it's funny, you know, you talk about vegan Thanksgiving, obviously there's not a turkey on that table. And I was speaking with uh, my producer before the show, and we kind of came to the conclusion, vegan or not, turkey is just one of those overrated foods. So you may even be doing the family a, a service, even though you're breaking from tradition, by skipping the turkey and going with uh, maybe the vegan lasagna there. I'm also looking, by the way, at these uh, cauliflower wings. If you need an appetizer, uh, Doc, the cauliflower wings look absolutely fantastic as well. So uh, there will be a link to purchase Simply Plant-Based uh, in the show description or in the episode notes, wherever you're watching or hearing this, go ahead and scroll down and click on that right now. And you can also schedule an appointment to visit Dr. Rahman at the Barnard Medical Center. Call 202-527-7500 to schedule that appointment or visit barnardmedical.org to schedule the appointment and get a full list of states where services are available. Uh, thank you, Chuck. Thanks for having me. One of the questions that came up during the show today reminded me of something that I heard one time. I forget who said it. But the question was from someone today who had just gone vegan and wanted to know how they will know if they are getting all the nutrients that they need. And it was this quote, and quote went something like, what we have are requirements for the amount of nutrients that we need, but we do not have requirements on where we get those nutrients. So when someone says that you need meat for protein, or liver for iron or milk for calcium. 
The science shows that that is just not so. You can find all of those things in abundance in a plant-based diet, but what you will not find in said diet is cholesterol, which even doctors on this very show have said we don't need because our bodies actually produce our own. And we also don't need the carcinogens and excess fat and a whole bunch of other things that can be harmful to our health. And so that knowledge, that nutrition knowledge is definitely something that we should be thankful for this year. And I want to say thank you also to everyone who sent in a question to the show today. And that top question about what happens when you overeat. You know, for those of us who struggled with our weight, I mean, I'm thinking back just to my time living that life. It was like I was in a persistent state of fatigue. I mean, not just feeling sick a lot, but tired literally all of the time. And Dr. Rahman said that food is supposed to make us feel energized. But making the wrong food choices, unhealthy choices, and a lot of them, it can sap your energy in a major way. I mean, think about when you may have gone back for a second or even a third helping. Maybe it was at Thanksgiving. How did you feel? Probably not like you were ready to go out and run a marathon. I mean, heck, just getting off of the couch probably seemed like a chore. I know that it did for me back in the day. I mean, have you ever felt like that? Especially if you weren't eating a healthy diet back then. Think about what you ate back in those days versus what you eat now and how differently you may feel. It's like upgrading from a 1970s jalopy to a modern, fully loaded Tesla. You are now riding in style with your health. And speaking of style, this episode is generously sponsored by Kinder Beauty. Founders Daniela Monet and Ivana Lynch created this monthly beauty subscription box to offer cruelty-free products that you will absolutely love, but have never been tested on animals. How great is that? Daniela and Ivana are also offering 50% off your first box with the code EXAMROOM, and a portion of sales comes right back to support the Physicians Committee. And you can learn more about Kinder Beauty at kinderbeauty.com. Just remember the code EXAMROOM to save 50%. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Vanita Rahman for being here and answering so many of your questions. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.